Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. From the Gert Boyle Studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. The Oregon Office for Community Dispute Resolution supports 12 centers across the state where trained mediators help community members settle disagreements before they go to court. The office is housed within the University of Oregon's law school. It also provides the basic training needed to begin the process of becoming a court-appointed mediator. It recently offered its first series of trainings entirely in Spanish in what might be the first program of its kind in the country. Veronica Banuelos led the workshops. She is a founder and principal consultant at her own consulting firm. Gabriela Wamsha participated in them. She is the president of Lanin Imam, a natural resource consultancy. They both join us now, along with Patrick Sponsler. He is the administrator of the Oregon Office for Community Dispute Resolution. It's great to have all three of you on Think Out Loud. Thank you, David. It's good to be here. Pleasure to be here. Patrick Sponsler, first, we should maybe start with the basics. What is your definition of mediation? Yeah, thank you. Um, Well, very broadly, um, mediation is where people bring in a third party to help them negotiate their differences and find resolution. It's a it's a process that can be used in disputes with two individual parties on on small matters, but it's also a process that can be used in disputes involving dozens of organizations and millions of dollars at stake. And what at what level does does your office mainly focus its efforts in in terms of, of helping mediators? Yeah, great. The um, as the name suggests, we operate in the in the the field of the community mediation. There's multiple um, uh, fields of levels of mediation, and um, so we we help uh, folks that are kind of the the day to day aspects that impact their lives. And um, I like to think of community mediation as an opportunity. It's an opportunity for individuals, groups, and organizations to create their own solutions and retain decision making authority while holding people accountable for their actions before it gets before those disputes escalate into going through the court system. What are the kinds of disputes or conflicts um, that, that might fall under that umbrella? Yeah, like I say, it's those disputes that impact community members' day-to-day lives. There's housing matters such as eviction cases. Um, there's living agreements that mediators work in, in support with uh, programs such as second home or home share programs. They do family reuni- uh, family reunification plans, and they work with um, youth and adult uh, restorative justice programs and partnerships with school and juvenile centers and DA offices. And um, classic cases of neighbor-to-neighbor disputes of barking dogs, fence lines, and other disputes like that. But then they also do some statewide programming, such as um, the USDA Agricultural Mediation Program, the Oregon Foreclosure Avoidance Program, and then they um, support the Marina and Manufactured Dwelling Program out of OHCS. Veronica Banuelos, what first drew you to conflict resolution, to, to mediation? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, you know, there's there's so many different things that drew me to this. Um, and it's hard for me to talk about this without mentioning that I'm also a spiritual director. And um, just as a practitioner of, of um, systems and equity um, and sort of this foundational uh, sort of lens uh, as a spiritual director, it just 
to me, there was like something that just drew all of these different lenses that points to the same thing, which is um, resolution um, and uh, sort of contradiction to all of the things that separate us, which is connection, right? Connection through all of these different lenses, particularly around systems. You know, since, and since so you, to me, if, if I hate to interrupt, but, but since you said it's so central to understand, to your understanding of your work, being a spiritual director, I have to be honest, I, I, don't think I know what that means. Oh, okay. Um, so, you know, the, the easiest way that I've found to explain it is, you know, you go to the doctor when uh, when you're, there's, you're sick, you need some attention, your body needs um, attention. Some folks, uh, some of us have a spiritual lens in our lives. And so for those folks, they, you know, we go to, to people who have that lens and um, sort of trying to make sense of make meaning of their lives. Um, and so that's pretty much what sort of in a, in a nutshell, what, um, a spiritual director does is like, it, it helps you figure things out, um, in your, in your life, just like a counselor would be more sort of mental health. And, you know, there's just spiritual direction is just another layer of, of who we are as human beings, whether, you know, you, you sort of practice that or not. Does hmm. that make sense? It does. And, and, and for you, it, it, it seems like it's, it is intimately tied to your work in mediation absolutely uh to me it's it's you know i've, I've just had always felt this calling of like okay I'm, I'm a problem solver and i need to figure out what are the intersections of systems thinking equity work um and and um like what is the solution? And to me, one of the things that I have found out is to contradict any of of the things that get in the way is to do the opposite. Like, how do we um, contradict oppression? Is we connect, right? So, if the job of racism is to separate races um, or people uh, by race, then we need to do the opposite. And so, how do we do that by um, finding ways? towards each other through mediation, through systems lens, um, through, you know, context, putting people in context, putting um, conflicts into context. Gabriela Buamsha, you're trained as a biologist and as a soil scientist. How did you get involved in mediation work? That's a good question. Thank you. Um, Scientists need to be good communicators, and I got interested in conflict resolution when I started my first job um, because there's conflict in the workplace daily, right? And if we can, we cannot learn to address it in a healthy way, it, it really can ruin people's life and organizations. Um, I was first, I've been for more than 20 years a, a team facilitator, which is another, it's within the range of conflict resolution, but really facilitators in meetings in the workplace. We run meetings and agendas and timelines and deadlines, and we work around conflicts that come up, but we don't really address it. So I've always, I knew about mediation and as a possibility, a one way to address and maybe solve or begin to solve the conflict and finally, last year, I was able to take my first class in English. Hmm. Well, that, let's turn then directly to, to the, the, this, the, the big reason that we're talking with all three of you, which is this decision to, to offer these classes now in Spanish. Patrick Sponsler, what was the idea behind that? 
Yeah, thank you. Um, well, about a year and a half ago, we, um, my office, OCDR, we sponsored equity facilitations with the the twelve mediation centers with their organizational leaders. We use the uh, Meyer Memorial Trust DEI Spectrum tool to ground those conversations. And one of the pieces that arose uh, out of that was a need to improve outreach and and services to non English community members, particularly the Spanish speaking community. And this this goes back to the beginning of community mediation as that it, it started in the United States back in the 60s during the civil rights movement as efforts to achieve racial, ethnic, class and gender equality gain momentum. And one goal of that act was to reform the justice system. But there was a second parallel path that developed that more closely aligned with the philosophical framework of the activism. And there was a there was an understanding that the forum for resolution for community civic issues was within the community itself, not necessarily the institutional structures that are designed to address those conflicts. So taking that belief that the forum was with the communities that resolving these disputes was within the community, we wanted to dig deeper into those conversations with Spanish speaking communities. And this this training was one small step towards that conversation and and creating more sustainable services. There are ways around basic language gaps. I mean, you can have interpreters, and I understand there there, there are interpreters when, say, there's a, uh, a native English speaker and a native speaker of some other language who has more limited English skills. How does that impact a mediation session? What are what can that accomplish, and and what does what is not solved through interpretation? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, and as what Veronica was saying is, in, in community mediation, solutions come from listening and connecting and understanding. And yes, while they while all the centers do provide interpretation services, there's something gets lost in tra- in the translation there and in the, in the interpretation and and. The, while and when when parties are reaching out to the centers, they they're looking to move forward. They're stressed. They've got a lot of their lot of uh, they're under a lot of stress, and so they're looking to um, build trust and be able to move forward. And so one of those ways of connecting is being able to be able to speak to the party in their first language, and not only speak, probably more importantly, to be able to listen to the to the to the other party in their first language. So if you can build build trust better and be able to move. Um, to a resolution in a more efficient manner. Veronica Manuelos, I mean, so one of the things we're we're talking about here is the difference between the linguistic nuances maybe and and things that can get lost in translation. Yeah. What are examples of those? Yeah, I mean, it's it's also just the, the culture itself. You know, like, you know, here's a big generalization and and there's some truth to this. Right. So like as Latinos, we are more of interdependent people. We're very relational. Right. So like, you know, versus more of the sort of hyper independence. So we tend to learn in community. So the way that I teach in English is different than the way that I teach in Spanish, where there, we find out, like, we tend to do more relational things, more, um, you know, how have you been practicing your tools this week and really diving deep into some of those personal, you know, stories and, and examples, which, which Gavi was a part of, right? And so so, so subtle differences like that, right, where we, we tend to be more um even the language that we use in 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 English is more around like self-awareness, self-discovery, self-esteem. You know, we tend to be like, okay, well, you know, relational awareness, relational fulfillment, relational discovery, 
you know, how am I in my community? So though that actually plays out in the way that I teach and the way that we learn in community. Mm-hmm. So that's just um, one other aspect of, um, you know, that. And then the, like when I've done mediations in Spanish, folks will say, well, can I bring, you know, can I bring my a, a relative? Can I bring somebody with me? And that's actually very common it, because we are more sort of this, Uh, connected relational uh, communal folks so again it's not just language it's it's culture it's learning um and you know so so knowing how to adapt to that gabriella it it does gabriella i'm I'm curious you know uh, as somebody who took this this spanish language training and as a, a native spanish speaker after you'd already done the training in english what did you notice what was different for you thank you for that question and my answer will, will add to what uh, peers were talking about. When we uh, speak in our first language and we're surrounded by people that share the culture, like in this case, the Latin American culture, we can re-access our emotions much better. And on top of that, we can learn better in our first language, especially if the one guiding speaks that language as the first language to and again, share the culture, right? So when all these things come together, media- in mediation, you access emotions. And as a mediator, if you're speaking your first language, when like when I mediate in Spanish, for two parties that speak Spanish and requested that service, I myself as a mediator can access my, my emotions easier, right? Because I need to learn as a mediator to manage my emotions because mediation is the mediation is between the parties, not the mediator. The mediator only facilitates the conversation. And that's also why this is so empowering because the parties who first start talking, maybe they never talk face to face in a safe place, which mediation will give you a safe place where what we discuss is um, confidential. And then um, we try to solve it, not the mediator, it's the parties. And to me, this I literally relearned the process of mediation because through uh, the 35 hours of this training, I literally had to access, and it was really hard, all my emotions, all my own things. And, and for instance, when you mediate, sometimes there's people is fighting over something that you might not think about that, that is close to you, but in the middle of the mediation, things come up that relate to something that hurt you or bother you or is important to you, like you're very passionate. Then you need to pull as a mediator that aside because you might start taking sides for one party or the other. So all that might not happen in another language because you are in, your brain is working differently. And Veronica knows more about this. Hmm. Well, Veronica, in in that example, uh, or um, it, I, I think that the scenario was that say there there were two native Spanish speakers. That the two parties were both native Spanish speakers. I'm curious about um, when, when when that's not the case, but say that there's one's native Spanish speaker and one is a native English speaker, and the mediator say is um, a, maybe a newly trained native Spanish speaker. It it strikes me as a kind of reversal of the, the dominant culture norm in terms of, you know, government agencies or the legal system, how might that linguistic power balance affect a mediation? 
Well, I mean, I think one of the things that I train mediators on is just exactly that, to understand when you're standing in for the system, right? What I mean by system is like, where, where is the power, right? So like, um, there's all of these different ways that we can hold power. Um, and so it really depends on like, who is the person and what are, why are they there for, but to, to, for us to be really clear on, on understanding the differences that are uh, of the different dynamics that are at play um, and to be able to sort of normalize that and bring those into the table as well. You know, so like, um, I'm just saying like, I'm, I'm just going to normalize and name that there's right now, you know, we're at the table and there's some power differences within the context of this conversation. So to be able to name those things, I think is really important and to acknowledge it. One thing that comes to mind is just literally this conversation we're having right now that we're having it in English. If I could speak Spanish, um, we could probably <laughs> dig deeper in different ways between certainly Veronica and Gabriela. And I don't know, Patrick, if you speak Spanish, I, I, I don't really at all. But I mean, it's just it's it's pervasive. The issues we're talking about is not just in mediation; yeah. it's everywhere in life. Patrick Sponsler, um, we're just talking about one training so far. That's that's relatively limited. What are your broader plans to expand on what you've done, and and what are your biggest hopes for for where this could go? Yeah, thank you. Um, we we have a goal of implementing sustainable services, but we wanted we want this to be a thoughtful build over over time. Um, and and so right now we are in the in the process of, of listening and <clears throat> engaging in meaningful conversations with community partners, and the long term plan is is still formulating. When we first um, started uh, exploring this training, I was actually a little surprised as to how that there was there there aren't these trainings available across the nation, and so it was a little bit of a surprise that we needed to that there was a build that needed to be had, and so we are um, looking to. Um, and in the more long term, we're looking to invest, likely to invest in one region of the state and have them build out the their programming so that then we can pull back together with the other statewide organizations and share lessons learned um, with the entire statewide network. And um, and we're so we're listening to and exploring what we exactly need to build that capacity so that we can continue developing the work out of our 2025 um, uh, legislative allocation for next year. Patrick Sponsler, Veronica Banuelos, and Gabriela Boamsha, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Patrick Sponsler is the administrator of the Oregon Office for Community Dispute Resolution. Veronica Banuelos led a recent workshop. Gabriela Boamsha participated in it. Finally today, our managing producer, Shiraz Sadiq, joins me to read some of your recent feedback. Hey, Shiraz. Hey, Dave. A couple of weeks ago, we talked with Joel and Sarah Bonds. Their house was destroyed in the recent ice storm by a Douglas fir tree that the city of Portland denied them a permit to remove. David Vangsness wrote on Facebook, The question is how the city denies an owner the right to remove an item of their own property. All trees have a lifespan and will die. At best, the city intended to save this one for a decade or so. Cutting even a healthy tree on your own place is nothing the city should dictate. Unbelievable. Dunya Markham shared her experience. She said, in 2021, a major limb of our maple sheared off during the ice storm. I was sitting on the couch and watched and heard it crash and land inches from me. 
I'm still terrified of the sound of tree branches snapping. She added, the carnage of trees in this storm cannot possibly be random. This is a climate crisis, and the next storm will also bring trees down. The city should invest in cutting down diseased and dying trees and planting trees that will survive our changing climate. The city should pay for removal of trees on private property anytime there is a deemed risk. Stephanie Marie wrote, I honestly think if I were a homeowner with a dangerous but deemed safe tree, I'd find a way to kill it without being caught. I don't exactly know how I'd be able to pull it off, but it's better than my house or my neighbor's house getting destroyed and people potentially dying. And the fact the city is putting people in a position to either commit fraud, face a fine of thousands of dollars, or risk death is all the evidence you need that this program is failing the city. We also got an email from Rick Till, a certified master arborist and tree care safety professional. He wrote, the Bonds experience was clearly traumatic and merits more reporting. I'm sure you're aware, but there's a lot more context and perspective on how we manage the risks of living with trees near our homes. He went on to say, there is a huge caveat for our industry standards and a related disconnect to public perception. We evaluate tree risk in the context of normal weather conditions. We simply cannot make reliable predictions of what will happen to trees in unpredictable weather. Our standards also recognize that the tree owner sets the acceptable level of risk. As arborists, we can only provide our informed opinion on the risks and options for mitigating them and let owners make the decisions. January 26th marked the 324th anniversary of the last Cascadia subduction zone earthquake. We asked you how you were preparing for the next big one. Jesse from Boring left us this voicemail. I keep um, two 15-gallon drums of water out back, and I make sure that they are chlorinated so they will not grow bacteria in them, and they will be safe to use if we need water. I also worry about um, having combustibles around my house um, and make sure that everything that is on my property is going to be fire safe as best as possible. And um, I also keep a handful of rations, which mostly I use for rock climbing and backpacking, but, you know, having all those things on hand is certainly the move. Kate Comiskey wrote on Facebook, if the city and state response to the recent storms is any indication, we are in major trouble for disaster relief after the earthquake. I hope Oregonians learned from the lack of aid and assistance this winter through the power outages, freezing temps, and lack of water. When the quake hits, we will largely be on our own to survive. David from Portland was also thinking about the recent ice storm. He left us this voicemail. I'm more cognizant of the uh, earthquake possibility and will be better prepared because of the storms and powder out, power outage. I will have a generator to run some electricity, an adapter, so the gas fireplace will work, you know, assuming the earthquake doesn't disrupt that. And also big supply of water and food that can be stored. Finally, we heard from Michel in Vancouver. He left us this voicemail. So I have food, I have water, I have things to cover windows if they break, uh, things like that. But the one thing I know I need to do, and I still haven't found the time to do, is to anchor heavy furniture to the walls, including um, TV furniture or library shelves or cupboards in the kitchen. I have a good friend who was in Haiti during the big earthquake, and he said in his apartment, everything that was in cupboards 
ended up in a big jumbled pile mess in the middle of the, the room and the cupboards were bare. We always welcome your emails and your comments in whatever form you like. Our address is thinkoutloud at opb.org. And our voicemail number is 503-293-1983. On Facebook, we're at OPBTOL. Thanks, Shiraz. You're welcome, Dave. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to talk with Erica Hayasaki about her book, Somewhere Sisters. It's a story of twin sisters, one who remained in her native Vietnam, one who was adopted by a white family in the U.S., and their eventual complicated reunion. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rosie Tucker Charitable Trust, Ray and Marilyn Johnson, and the Susan Hammer Fund of the Oregon Community Foundation. Mm-hmm.